If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab them. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 3, looking at the first seven verses of that chapter. Um, If you don't own a Bible or you don't have one with you today, there are some in this back corner here in the auditorium. Um, If you don't own one, that's our gift to you. Um, And if you didn't have one today, it'll also be on the screen behind me. But just to bring you up to speed a little bit of where we're at in our series through through Daniel, as we're coming to a close is that right now, as we open in chapter three, there's a bit of a transition between chapter two and chapter three. In chapter two, you saw King Nebuchadnezzar's dream and his concern with this dream, not understanding its interpretation and its meaning. And so then Daniel interprets the dream for the king and shows that there are many kingdoms in the earth, but the final kingdom that will stand forever is the kingdom of God. And then finally in that, in the last part that we talked about last week, we looked at the influence and the leadership and the position of Daniel and that God positioned him in the midst of this pagan culture to be an influence. And so this is what's gone on in chapter two and what really scholars believe and, and, and commentary writers believe is that there's a few years, a couple years that have passed by between chapter two and chapter three. So this is not just next day, but what that tells us is there remained an idea of the king of what his position and his glory should be. So we're going to see what King Nebuchadnezzar does with the dream that was interpreted for him. So we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 60 in 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the providence of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, Trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, All the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So here in in our text, where we kind of pick back up is that Nebuchadnezzar has set up this golden statue, which by the way, to give you some information, is 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide. 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide. And so you can imagine this image will stand up and really stand out from everything else from miles away. And so just to give you a little perspective on how massive this thing was, is that in that time in the Old Testament, the average statue that would have been brought up by a king or by a ruler or by someone was on average 12 to 18 feet. So you have these that are on average standing between 12 and 18 feet, and King Nebuchadnezzar brings up one that's 90 feet. 
And so like I said, many scholars and Bible commentary writers really believe that several years have passed since the dream was interpreted by Daniel, but the statue is clearly inspired by the dream and the vision he gave that we saw in chapter two. And so here's what's interesting about this, that the vision said that the head of gold, it described many different types of material. The head of gold signified Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, but here the statue is in gold from head to toe. And so the message is clear here. King Nebuchadnezzar really takes his own interpretation, his own view, and he says, listen, I am, and this is the greatest kingdom and the only one worth pledging allegiance to. So what he does then is he demands unity in this kingdom and unity around his own work. Think about that. As we read those short seven verses, how many times it references the work and the glory and the honor and the power to King Nebuchadnezzar. So you can see where the worship is being pointed to. That Nebuchadnezzar was given a vision of what was true about God and God's kingdom, and yet he chose to exchange it for a vision of his own glory. So where the world would be united around what he, Nebuchadnezzar, had created, rather than choosing to worship the creator, the one true God. So as soon as the people knew the stakes involved that there was fiery wrath for all who did not worship what Nebuchadnezzar had set up, there was mass obedience. This is what's going on in the culture. Nebuchadnezzar says, listen, either bow or burn. And so this is where things are at. And maybe for most people, it wasn't even that big of a deal. We can worship his God and we'll worship our God, which just to break this down for you, this is common in our culture today. Really, there's two types of belief systems that to worship the one true God, the singular worship would be what is called monotheism, where we believe that there is only one true God, the God of the Bible. And then our culture really believes that there's more this pluralistic, you have your spirituality, I have my spirituality, you have your God, I have my God, which is called polytheism. And so this right here in Babylon was a pluralistic culture in nature, believing that there were many gods and many ways to both salvation and the divine. And so really the question for them is, what's, what's wrong if I bow down to this one? So this just one. It's just one of many. It doesn't take long. What we see is for pluralistic society to become oppressive. Where what's happening here is it's okay to worship whatever God you want as long as you bow down to whatever the king says. You can have your God, but you have to also do what the king says, what the government says. And so this isn't coexist, it's bow or burn. But for us here today, church, if we are going to choose Christ, then we need to take a stand and choose to worship God alone. And so what we're gonna see in our text as we unpack this is what we're, what we're gonna learn from this is that regardless of what the culture worships, We must be unwavering in our worship that it would be to God alone. So regardless of what the culture worships. So we see in verse five that the culture of Babylon, the people of Babylon chose to worship King Nebuchadnezzar. And the second part of verse five that we read actually says that everyone was to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So here you have the culture worshiping the image of a worldly king. 
And so ultimately what this is, what you have going on here, is you have an idol set up and you have idolatry. And so maybe for you, if you don't understand what an idol is, let me break this down for you. An idol is really an image or representation of a god used as an object of worship. A person or a thing that is greatly admired and loved. And so ultimately for us, what that means is an idol is anything that replaces the one true God in our lives. And so idolatry is really taking a good thing, it's taking something that can be good in our culture and making it a God thing, which then in return makes it a bad thing. And so really we need to understand that, that we need to not be pursuing idolatry, but pursuing worship of the one true God. Because worship is positioning everything in our lives and making it about God. So I wanna just look at some ideas of what idolatry looks like in our culture. Because the reality is there, there's idolatry of a 90 foot tall by nine feet wide statue, but that's not as relevant for us today. For some of us, we're going, okay, don't go worship some big statue some guy put up. I could do that. But today there's more passive idolatry that we don't even realize at times. Because idolatry is having any false god in place of the one true God. So where any object or idea or our own philosophy or habit, occupation, sport, or other primary concern and loyalty causes us to decrease in our trust and loyalty to the Lord. And this is what I've said to us before, is that one of the most basic principles is that whatever controls and shapes your life is in effect the God that you are worshiping. So I wanna show you some things that, that sometimes can control and shape our lives that can be a good thing, but if we are not intentional, they can become a God thing, which then in turn becomes a bad thing. So let me give you some examples. One is, is sports. Think about this for a second. I want you to look closely at this picture and think about the details in it. You have people with their hands raised. They've come into a large space, an auditorium. They've gathered together to celebrate and, and, and honor and make the object of their affection and their attention, this team, that they would succeed. And, and, and it's not just a sports team, it's a movement. You're part of this. You're involved in this. You're a 12th man. So you have this here. Now, now I want to show you another image that may show to be similar. So here you have an image that's similar to this of one of our worship services. Now, let's just go back to that other image. You have a space where people have gathered together to celebrate and to worship. The difference is the object of their worship. So there's nothing wrong for us to leave here after service and go watch the game. I'm not saying go home and go, listen, we can't turn on the game. The pastor will know, and that's idolatry. That's not what I'm saying, but think about how football is fun. That's a good thing, but it can become a God thing if what we're doing is making that the object of our attention and our affection. And so think of how subtle that can become and how similar that is to our own service and worship where we're saying this is the time where we give God our true focus and our attention. And then also this can happen in technology. You have one of the leaders in technology, Apple. So here you have one of the leaders in creative and innovative technology. 
And here behind me, this image is a building constructed to house all the devices and accessories that are widely sought after and adored. So basically here what you have is a worship center with all of the sacraments. Here you have a place where you can find how to be a part of this movement and people to help you, almost like ushers. You see the similarities here, how this can really for some become a house of worship. And then also there's other ways through social media like Facebook. And here you have an interesting one because this is all about making connections. This is a great platform to make connections with uh, friends that you've lost connection with, Um, We use uh, Facebook all the time to share what's going on in the church. This can be a a good thing, but, but it can become a bad thing if we try to make it a God thing. And what's interesting to me is that through today's media and culture and social media, we are more connected than we ever have been with more people than we have ever been connected with. And even though it's easier to find people with shared common interests than interests that it ever has been before, today we feel more alone and more unknown than in any other time in human history. And, and I'm not just saying this from my own opinion. These are, these are things that are, that are being studied. How we're more connected than we ever have been, but yet more disconnected. The rate of depression goes up as the rate of digital connection goes up. And so there's this longing in us And so almost that can be the object of our affection and our worship, making ourselves know know me, see me, see what's going on in my life. Here, I'm gonna post what's going on in my life. Follow me, be about me. And then you have another one, Instagram. And this is an app where people take pictures of the best parts of their life and their food. This app takes what you have already, already have and it makes it instantly better. It's what you have already and it makes it instantly better. And so this is something that can easily become our God. Where we're wanting and desiring what's better and what's more appealing. So we change to conform to what looks good on the outside. All well, there's a disconnect inside. Then even something that can become an idolatry and, and an object of our worship is people. So the first one, that I think we, we often overlook is self. That really often the default position of everyone when they feel unsatisfied or uneasy or undone in life is let me better myself. Let me fix myself because a better version of me will probably be the solution. A better version of me will probably be the resolve to my dissatisfaction. But the reality is, no, it won't. Only Christ will. But in this pursuit, what happens is the object of our worship becomes ourselves. And when that doesn't work, then to to just look within and try to better ourselves, we try others. Maybe if I pursue others. And so what happens in, in an unhealthy way, we put ourselves in unhealthy relationships and we try to make them our gods. We try to make them, man, let me position myself towards your attention, your affection, But remember, what I've said to all of us before is that we make crummy gods. We really do. Family can even be one that can be an idolatry. It can unintentionally become the object of our worship where we really elevate family above God. That we we say, man, my my kids come first above anything else, above God. For God, I'm, I'm putting my kids first. 
Or I'm, I'm putting my marriage first before God. We can even do this with a mentor, where, where it's a close mentor who can, who can also become the who and the what of what we worship. So where we value them and their thoughts and their opinions and their convictions above that of God's. So rather than going to God and, and worship, saying, God, whatever you want me to do, what, what would be your will in my life? We go to that friend or that mentor and say, what, what do you think I should do? I'm more concerned, I'm more focused, I'm more fixed towards what you think I should do than, than going to God and saying, God, what would you have me do? So these are some of the things that, that can be good, but if we're not careful, we can try to make them a God thing, which makes them a bad thing. And then also another one is musicians and artists. I mean, we have a whole generation coming up that is looking for something that can be very dangerous, and that's fame. I mean, our culture literally has a show tuned around this idea of in America, you can be your own idol, right? So literally our culture is saying, listen, idolatry is the best thing for you. We are gonna raise you up to where fame will be it if you're good enough. And so look at the image, look at the title saying this can be a good thing. Let's make this a God thing. And then you have uh, America's Got Talent. You have all these shows really built on emotion and influence where, where it's really, listen, become the things you've always wanted to become if you just follow what we say. So sell yourself for this and, and we'll let you become whatever you want and it'll be about you. You know, my, my wife and I have been watching America's Got Talent and it's really intriguing to watch. It's Really intriguing, partly because there are some really talented people and there's some terrible people out there. And that's really fun to watch too. Um, but one of the things that really intrigues me about the show is, is how it plays into your emotion. I don't know if you think through that when you watch shows like that, but when, before someone comes on, you know, not everybody on America's Got Talent gets a story. And there's this moment where this is our culture's worship service, worship to self where there's this three to five minute testimony that says, here's who I am, here's who I've walked through. And we've literally looked at each other, you know, feeling those goosebumps. Oh, that's, that's an intense story going, they're gonna win. They're gonna win because, because that's how it's been positioned. Who can we get in that place that everyone would wanna position themselves like? Not, not like the one true God, but let, let's create in our culture a system to where people can be like other people. And so you have all of this where our hope is really in things. It's not in God, but our, our hope becomes in things and in other people. I mean, think about it this way with political figures, with politicians. You have promises made. You have hope put in that one person. This will be our savior. This is the person that's gonna bring better resolve. And, and, and I don't worship that one. I'm gonna worship this one. And, and then you have, look at the, the political campaign in 2008 from President Obama. Look at the slogan there on, this, on the image behind me. Change we can believe in. So, so now you have a slogan that says, put your trust in me. You, you want the change and the better resolve. Here's, here's what to worship. And then also you have belief in there. So here's where to put your hope and your affection and your attention and your worship and also your faith that you would believe because we can believe in this. But remember, regardless of what the culture worships, we must be unwavering in our worship. 
We need to be unwavering in our worship that regardless of what the culture tries to worship or seek out, we remain faithful to God. And we see this in, in the end of verse five through seven. We see that the people are instructed that when they heard the sound of the music, they were to bow down and worship the king's idol. They weren't, they weren't unwavering. They were quick to respond because of the fear of what would come. And he literally says in, in these verses, when you heard the sound of the, of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you were to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. See, here's what's intriguing that I don't think we, we catch on to so much is that music plays a very influential role in our lives and we need to be careful not to take that as worship. We need to not take that because there are times where people will be in a service and they'll go, oh man, that was just so worshipful. I'll just go, why? What, what was so worshipful about it? It was just so worshipful. Well, come to find out really the reverb was really high and the worship leader sang that key, just so perfect. And the reality is we need to be careful of understanding how influential music is, but that music is not ultimately worship. But it does, in fact, play an intriguing part in, in our emotions. I mean, last year we did a, a series called Scandalous Lyrics where we looked at some of the hymns. And one of the hymns we looked at was It Is Well With My Soul. And I remember sharing that, that sermon and, and sharing the story behind the writing. And then as we sang the song, as I looked over, an older gentleman was just weeping weeping and I'm thinking what's wrong and 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 going and sitting with him and hearing his story that was the song played when he gave his life to Christ and that just brought all that back hearing that it is well it is well with my soul that just brought all of that emotion back all of that memory so music plays an incredible role and influence and so can all these other things and so this was very intentional for King Nebuchadnezzar saying, listen, we're going we're gonna to take what's influential in this culture and we're going to use it for our own glory. And really also there's a cost tied to not bowing down to the king's idol. And in verse six, the people are informed of the consequences when they said, whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. But let me just remind you of something that none of the things that I listed earlier or what the king has said can make up what we're called to worship. This is not what we're supposed to reflect. And so for us, church, we need to be unwavering regardless of the cost. We need to be unwavering regardless of the cost. Because this issue of idolatry can creep in and affect us even in little ways that we're sometimes not aware Even Israel fell into the issue earlier in the Old Testament when dealing with a difficult season in the desert. When they were freed from captivity, the whole intention God had of freeing his people was so that they could go and they should worship him. But they grew tired of God's plan and wanted to make their own plan. And so they instructed Moses and they positioned before him and requested, and we see this in Exodus 32 verse one. They said, make us gods who shall go before us. Make us gods who would fit our own image. And so Israel really wanted a God that was their own reflection, their own creation. But here's the reality. We do not worship another image because we are the image of God. So it is him that we worship. 
And so the Israelites here were worshiping their own created images, but they were to be the image of God who worshiped God. Let me, let me clarify this for you. In Genesis chapter one, verse 27, God lays out his whole plan and intention for us as his kids. It says in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so what this means is not that we're to become like little gods, but that in our living, that we would be a reflection of the one true God. And so let me give you an example. This morning when you got up, you looked in a what as you got ready? In a mirror. Some of you did not. I could see that. Um, But some of you did. And what does a mirror do? It reflects you. A mirror reflects. And so God really made us to be his mirrors, to bear his image, to reflect his image. But think about that position that's really important. Because if we position ourselves away from the one true God and onto what's going on in the culture, what can happen is then we begin to reflect idolatry. What can be a good thing, but made a God thing, which is then in turn a bad thing. And so as believers, as followers of Christ, for us, worship is about reflecting the goodness and the glory of God. So in every area of our life, when we love, when we forgive, when we seek justice and truth, and when we're generous, we're to reflect the goodness and the glory of God. And so really, ultimately, what God is saying through this intention is don't get an image to worship. Don't worship creation. Be the image that reflects through worshiping the true creator. And so for us, we must be unwavering in our worship that really our worship would be to God alone. See, in the last verse, in verse seven, it's clear to see what the object of the worship is for the culture in Babylon. It's ultimately Nebuchadnezzar. Through his idol, it's bow down and worship me. Pay homage and honor and glory to me. And we see this in that verse, where it says all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So for us, church, what what we need to remember is that there is no other God but the one true God of the Bible. And he is a jealous God who will not tolerate the worship of another. We need to remember this as we've talked through this whole series that God is actively at work. And even though for a moment Nebuchadnezzar is going to erect this statue that's going to all of a sudden show that, man, he is the one to be worshiped. Ultimately, the interpretation of the dream has shown us it's the kingdom of God that will stand forever. And God tells us this of his character in Isaiah 48, verse 11 in the Old Testament. God says, my glory I will not give to another. Then also he gives this commandment to the Israelites. He says in Exodus 34, verse 14, you shall not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. See, God desires for us to worship him alone. That we would put him first and worship him alone because he alone satisfies. There is nothing else that will satisfy you. I guarantee you that. 
it, for, for a moment. Whatever you do may look good, it may feel great, it may seem appealing, but let me remind you that idolatry is ultimately empty. It's ultimately empty because it's only God that can satisfy. And so if you're in pursuit of that empty idolatry, you've really settled You've really settled. This is, this is going to really, it's not gonna do any good. And I think the idea in our mind when we're in the midst of pursuing idolatry is, well, this is what's going to ease my anxieties. This is what's going to really fix my hopes for the future and, and, and really what I'm gonna build upon in these things. But ultimately, these are the lies that our hearts have believed. I mean, all of the things that can become idolatry, from sexual desire to financial stability I mean, in, in marriage and in, and in stability of life, these things can be good, but ultimately, if we make them a God thing, they become a bad thing. And so really, if you're in pursuit of idolatry, you've trusted in the wrong thing. You've trusted in the wrong thing and you've put your hope in the wrong place. And the reality is that anything that takes our first loyalty and our allegiance is an idol. Anything that takes us away from the one true God is ultimately an idol. And so the sin of idolatry, like every other sin, is of the heart. Because the heart of the issue is the issue of the heart. And so as followers of Christ, our worship needs to be unwaveringly directed to God alone. So what this means is that we position ourselves before God choosing to reflect him as that mirror, not turning towards the culture, but turning towards God, where we're laying down our affections and our hope and our focus to where our worship is being daily moved from the things of this world to the creator of this world. That is worship. That is how it is to the true God, where regardless of what the culture worships around us, that we are unwavering in our worship, that it would be to God alone. Let's pray.